Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January the 4th, 2018. This is episode 2,353 of the Survival Podcast. It's January the 4th, 2019. It is Friday, 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 the monster show of the week as we uh, have the expert counsel. And today we have a special guest. This, this, this new guest will not be joining the expert council directly anyway. Uh, but I do have her on today's show. Uh, we're going to be doing, I guess you would call it a content exchange. This is kind of a big strategic partnership for the survival podcast. Assuming things work out so far, they're going pretty good. Uh, her name is Kim Commando. You may have heard of her. She has the most successful weekend radio show on terrestrial radio in the country. She's been uh, doing her thing for, uh, God, I think two or three decades now. I used to listen to her all the time back when I was on the road uh, traveling as a salesperson uh, when I would get stuck on the road on the weekends. And uh, she is in all things technology. And uh, she's going to do a segment for us today on taking Zello to kind of the family group level and some other push-to-talk applications for your smartphones. And I probably will not be running Kim's segments uh, on Expert Council Day. I'll probably be running them on Mondays because that's we kind of cover news and other things like that in the future. But I wanted to get her on the air as soon as possible. She recently uh, had me on our on her show, and that's what we're going to be doing from now on is exchanging segments that we're going to be running on each other's shows. Again, it's a big deal. Uh, Tech News This Week from Kim Commando is the uh, podcast that I'm going to be featured on. I'll put a link today uh, in the first episode that I was featured on last week, and we talked about documentation kits, etc. I think you guys really will dig Kim and her, her Tech News This Week. It's a short podcast, uh, comes out weekly, obviously, runs you know somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes at most. Covers a lot of different things and stuff you need to know about, like security updates and you know things like. Do you know that people are now hacking hot tubs? Yeah, like my hot tub has a wireless network capability. It's a smart hot tub, and there's actually people hacking into hot tubs and using those uh, for nefarious reasons. Now, I would have never known of that. Now, fortunately, my hot tub is not really vulnerable to this. Uh, but I would have never even known to even check without uh, Tech News This Week from Kim Commando. So she's going to talk to us again today about Zello, which I know is a big thing with our audience, but some other ways to use it and some other push-to-talk apps that you might find more useful at the family level. Moving on to our actual expert counsel stuff here, Doc Bones is going to talk to us today about dealing with EpiPens and serious allergies. And, you know, when they say the EpiPens expired, is it really expired? Should you throw it away and spend another three or 600 bucks buy a new one? Doc Bones will talk about all of that. How about getting paid and getting paid well by people or companies or clients that you've done work for really inexpensively or even for free in the past? A lot of times people, you know, when they test out a side hustle or something, they have a friend, they need something, they'll say, well, I can do that for you. And what are you going to try? I won't charge you anything this time. And then you're going to turn around and you're going to charge a good wage for what you're actually worth the next time they need you. It can be a little uncomfortable. Uh, but I've actually seen it be very, very beneficial. My wife one time actually got a job where she didn't really have anything to do, and she didn't really need to work, and she went down and volunteered. 
Uh, and about a month later, they simply offered her a job with pay. So it is a good way to come in the door with a lot of opportunities, but making the transition requires some tax. So side hustle expert Nicole Sauce will talk to you about that. How about mastering the reverse sear? The reverse sear. We talk a lot about sous vide cooking because it's such a good lifestyle enhancement uh, on the show when we talk about cooking. But there's other ways to kind of do sort of the same thing, and the reverse sear is one of them. And you don't need any special equipment. As long as you have a good oven and, and stove in your home, you are good to go doing the reverse sear. Chef Keith Snow will tell us all about that. Once again, we have questions about traditional versus Roth 401k plans. Good time of the year to look at that as we come into the new year with John Pugliano. And then we're going to talk all about propane-powered generators and propane pigs with Stephen Harris. And I have a question on brewing, inventing, making meat, etc. And what I actually mean when I say I don't sanitize anymore, and do I mean that just when I brew or when I bottle or what have you, we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about the fact that it's worked well now for several years and why I believe that's the case. All of that and more in just a moment. Let me remind you guys real quick first, though. If you love this show and you want us to be here for another 10 years for you like we have been for the last 10, the number one way you can make sure that happens is join the Members Support Brigade. It's 50 bucks a year. If you do the math, it comes out to about 18.3 cents per episode of the show. Of course, the show will always be free, but that is one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is, hey, I'm not PBS. You're not going to send me 50 bucks and I'm going to send you a $4 coffee cup. You're not going to send me $100 and I'm going to send you a $2 shopping bag and a $4 coffee cup. That's not how this works. I went out and found good discounts and stuff you're probably already buying for you. And you use those discounts. And I guarantee if you look at like 70 plus companies that we have for discount partners and you just every time you're going to buy something, take a look and see if you can get it there. And, you know, value shop it, too. Don't pay more just to go there. But you look at the discounts you get, buy things you were going to buy anyway. By the end of the year, if you do the math, you'll be like, well, I saved 80 bucks or I saved 100 bucks. One guy wrote me recently said last year he saved over $400 with a $50 membership. He's not canceling. And that's what I tried to do when I built MSB. So consider joining us to support us, but then use the benefits to put the money back in your pocket. You can learn more by going to the Survival Podcast Dot com and clicking on members. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders, all you guys qualify for a service discount. That is active duty or prior service. Doesn't matter if you were in the Army for three years, five years, or ten years ago. You still qualify for that discount. To get it before, not after you join, email me, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC. Uh, TSPC discount in the subject line. That'll make sure I find it if it goes into the junk filter, and I'll get back to you with that discount code. With that, let's go ahead and uh, and get into today's uh, content. Uh, let's talk first. We're going to have Kim Commando again come on again. Kim it has the most successful terrestrial uh, weekend radio show in the country. Been around for a long time. Just does a great job. I remember again listening to her back when I used to travel around. And uh, I was reached out to her, reached out uh, to by her team uh, last month and uh, said, hey, can we maybe work something out? And we kind of went back and forth about how we could make this work. And uh, I just did my first segment again for Tech News this week and the Kim Commando Show and uh, went over really well. And uh, Kim has reciprocated with some content. Uh, and I'd like for you guys, once Kim's done here, I want you to think about the fact that we have this incredible technical resource that we have this arrangement with now. Um, Beyond even just prepping, 
because we we talk about lifestyle enhancement and lifestyle design here. I'm not going to have like the thing like you ask her a question, she answers it directly uh, here. We're going to do more of our own prepared segments. However, I'd like to know, and I'm sure her team would like to know, what you would like to know more about from a technology, network security, etc. standpoint. Uh, you can just email me, and I'll forward that over to uh, to her team, and uh, they can work out what they want to cover. But I think that I'm going to ask them to do the same thing for me. You tailor your content to the audience, and you have success. With that, hey, Kim, tell us all about how we can take Zello down to that family level and some other push-to-talk applications that are out there and why we might want to consider them. Hey, Jack, it's great to be here and share just a few tech hints with your audience. Now, let's talk about some apps that we've been trying out over at Commando.com. And these could actually work if you happen to be in an emergency situation, say like a wildfire. What I love about these apps is that some of them work like a two-way radio. The first one at the top of the list is Zello. It's like, hello, but with the letter Z at the top. It turns your phone into a social network, kind of almost walkie-talkie. Right now, it's the most popular app of its kind on both Android and Apple. Okay, here's how it works. You set Zello up just like a social network. I'd walk you through it here on the podcast, but it's a lot easier to see. Just go to my website, search for Zello, again, Z-E-L-L-O, and we walk you through all the steps with screenshots and good stuff like that. But basically what it does, it turns your phone into a two-way radio so you can join social channels and then share information. During a disaster, you're able to connect to local rescue channels and communicate with anyone else who has Zello installed. What this means is that you can create your own private channel or use public ones. It's super easy to set up. Now, if you're in survival mode, you might want to search for local channels. Say you live in California and you want the latest information about the wildfires, or you've got family in an area that was affected by a hurricane. You can search for California fires or the hurricane by name and then speak to people who are also following this. You can share voice updates, of course, photos and text updates, and also your location. How Zello works is super interesting. It doesn't use radio frequencies. The app does require an internet connection, either through Wi-Fi or cellular data. So if you're off the grid and you don't have an internet connection, you might not want to get rid of that ham radio just yet. If you want a more traditional push-to-talk app that turns your smartphone into a walkie-talkie and just say skip all the social networking parts of it, a couple of other suggestions. The first one is Voxer. It's been around for a few years. It was developed by an Afghanistan war vet turned entrepreneur who wanted a better push-to-talk option for soldiers in the field. I just thought that was so interesting. Voxer is a live messaging app that will also record your messages so your contacts can listen later. Now, like Zello, Voxer wants you to create an account and let it access your contacts, your phone number, and email address. Where it differs from Zello is it's less like a social media tool and more like a, a group or one-on-one -on -one voice chat. You're not connecting to an open network around the world. You're connecting with people you know either one-on-one -on -one or in groups that you've set up. Remember, it needs an internet connection and you have to create an account, so it's not obvious. Apple users say Voxer can be a little glitchy, but when it works, they love it. Developers seem to be quick to fix bugs. Android users love its one-button push-to-talk and ability to record and send messages, images, and video. If you're looking for something even less intrusive and more private, this one is simply called Walkie Talkie. It's available for Apple and Android, and like the other two apps, it requires an Internet connection, which you get through Wi-Fi or cellular data. 
Here's what makes Walkie Talkie different from Zello and Voxer, though. No account required. You're completely anonymous. Well, you know, you're never really anonymous, but you get my drift. It doesn't access your contacts or photos. And if that sounds good, head over to commando.com and search Walkie Talkie app, and then you'll see how this one works. There's no setup, no configuration. You just pick a channel and hit the power button and push to talk. That's it. That's the good news. The bad news is all conversations are public. That's right. There's no private chat. Walkie Talkie has almost 10,000 channels. So if one channel gets crowded or noisy, you just switch to another. The glitch, if you want to call it a glitch, is that in the event of a disaster, you have to coordinate ahead of time what channel your circle of contact should use. So you might want to have a couple of channels as backups because when we tried it out here at Commando Headquarters, we found some channels to be much better than others. And it's this type of information that we cover in the Commando podcast that you can download over at podnet.com. Podnet is an on-demand digital podcast network built by podcasters for people who love podcasts. Totally jam-packed, valuable, cutting-edge, relevant information about technology and security, business, internet law. Again, that's podnet.com. Hey, thanks, Jack, for letting me break into your podcast and share some valuable digital know-how. And I'll see you next time. Now, of course, the, the TSP community has been using Zello as a group chat application for our own social group for a long time, but I didn't know about those other two uh, push-to-talk apps. And that's one of the things I really love about bringing other experts on is they expose you to things that you didn't know about, so, so you can add them to your toolkit. Now, all the stuff that uh, that Kim uh, mentioned, her podcast network and the apps and article, there's all links in today's show notes, so you can get on over there and check them out, and I encourage you to do so. Next. Next up, I have a uh, question for um, Doc Bones on dealing with serious allergies that require the use of EpiPens. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook's third edition, The New Antibiotic Guide, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Marty, who writes... My 12-year-old son is allergic to nuts, and his reactions can be anaphylactic. We always have EpiPens on us, and he self-carries, but they're temperature-sensitive and expire annually. The cost for a prescription is between 250 oh my gosh, and 450 wow, for two pens with our insurance, and we need four sets per year to make sure he's covered in all situations. So the questions are, one, in a situation where we can't get replacement EpiPens, how long are the old ones good for? Do they really expire or lose effectiveness after one year? How long are they good for if they're stored at room temperature? Two, can EpiPens withstand temperature swings? If we leave ours in the car by mistake, we generally had to trash them as they're so sensitive. And three, are there alternatives to Epi? Marty, for those who are hypersensitive to certain allergens like your son, a bee sting or a high pollen count can be life-threatening in the form, indeed, of anaphylactic shock. The treatment for anaphylactic shock is pretty straightforward. It's epinephrine via injection. Once given, epinephrine narrows blood vessels and opens airways in the lungs. And these effects can reverse hives, swelling, severe wheezing, low blood pressure, skin itching, all sorts of stuff. 
Other methods of delivery, such as oral doses of antihistamines, are generally too slow in their effect to be of much use. You need to have epinephrine by injection. Therefore, it just frosts my cookies that a 600% 2016 price hike from the company that makes the EpiPen or markets it actually put the drug out of the financial reach of so many people. And all this for a product that costs about 10 bucks to produce a two-pack with maybe about a dollar or two worth of drug. Well, enough of that. Let's get to your questions. How long do expired EpiPens continue to provide a beneficial effect if stored at room temperature? Do they really expire or lose effectiveness after one year? The answer is no, you might be surprised to know. In May 2017, I wrote an article on a study done by the California Poison Control System in San Diego. They tested 40 unused expired EpiPens and found that all, yes, all of them, retained at least 80% active epinephrine, the main ingredient. This was true even for EpiPens that closed in on the four-year expired mark. The least potent device, as a matter of fact, was found to be at 81% effectiveness 30 months after its expiration dates. Pretty amazing for a liquid medicine. Most of them were actually at 90% or above. So you might want to hold on to those expired EpiPens a little bit longer. You may need to give a second dose, but even the government is reluctant to say not to use them if you have to. Can EpiPens stand temperature swings? Studies show that drugs, especially those in liquid form, stored at 90 degrees lose potency twice as fast as those stored at 50 degrees. So the answer is, well, not so much. Store them in dark, cool, not freezing, dry conditions when they're not in your pocket. Are there alternatives to EpiPens? A number of auto-injectors indeed provide generic epinephrine, but they may be different from the EpiPen in how the mechanisms work. As of 2018, there were three branded products that were available in the U.S., the EpiPen, something called AdrenaClick, A-D-R-E-N-A-C-L-I-C-K, and AuviQ, A-U-V-I hyphen Q, if the auto-injector isn't an option, vials or ampules of epinephrine are available, also by prescription though, for you to pre-mix syringes as needed. 1 to 1,000 epinephrine solution contains 1 milligram of drug per milliliter or cc of solution. For a person weighing 30 kilograms, that's 66 pounds, or greater, give 0.3 to 0.5 milliliters that equals milligrams in this particular case, into the side of the thigh about the level of the bottom of your jeans pocket. Repeat the dose every 5 to 10 minutes, alternating left and right thighs until improvement is noted. One dose is usually sufficient. Remember that epinephrine can cause a fast heartbeat, nervousness, and perhaps a number of other side effects as well. Of course, you want to get the victim to modern medical care if at all possible. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, we're proud to announce that our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, is a number one Amazon bestseller in several categories. It talks about how to use the antibiotics you can get without prescription in the form of fish and bird meds, the stuff that I've been writing about for years and could help the family medic prevent unnecessary deaths from infection in survival scenarios. If you're a member of the preparedness community, you're going to want this unique book in your library. And while you're at it, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of kits and individual items at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets 10% off anything at our store with their special coupon code, 
Thanks again. All right. I'd like you to now imagine a scenario. You decided to go into a side hustle and you were good at something. So maybe you reached out to some of your friends and or they reached out to you and said, hey, I need some help with X, Y and Z. And you thought, you know, I'll just I'll just do that to help you out, get some experience, see if this is something I really want to do. Or you've contacted a company and you, you wanted to get an in with them and you said, hey, I can do some volunteer work for you or something like that. And over time you determine that this path is one that you really want to take. And then either that company or that person comes back and says, well, I need your help again. And now your answer has to be something along the lines of, well, it's funny you should mention that. I, I now have a business. This is what I do for a living. And I'm going to have to charge you for my time. How do you not only do that, but charge them a fair rate? I've, I've often run into people that want, you know, the friends and family rate. Um, and, and my response to that generally is, there isn't one. <laughs> I'm a little less tactful than some people are, though. But, I mean, to be you being friends and family and you need my services, generally we're going to look at one of two things. Either it's something I'm just not going to charge you for, and we're, we're doing it as a, a favor. Or if I'm charging you for it, you're going to pay what anybody else would pay for it. I just might move you to the front of the line. Uh, that might be the friends and family thing you get, you know, or what have you. Because if you're in business and you're doing work for free, It's hurting you multiple ways. Not only are you doing work for free and not getting paid, you're also not doing work for people that want to pay you. So it's it, it's a double it's a double whammy, and it's just not a good thing. So we need to be able to tactfully have this conversation and say, hey, you want me to provide you a service? I need you to provide me a, a wage or a fee in return for that service. Nicole, tell us your thoughts on this. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with a question from Kelly out in Little Rock. Kelly wants to know, how do I position myself to make a good fee at a company that wants to hire me, but where I have been volunteering to help out for free? Background, I could use some extra household income, so this would be a boon, but I do not want to set the fee too low. On the other hand, they have been using me for free, so it's hard to then command an excellent fee. Well, okay. This one's a great question, by the way. A lot of people struggle with how to set pricing. In fact, if you are an MSB member and the videos from the fall workshop come out, there was quite a bit of discussion about how to set pricing. So that's one good place to go. But I would say this, Kelly, your most powerful tool is being willing to walk away. And say no. And I know that's hard if you are looking to add a little bit to the household budget, but at the same time, you can either work for this company at a fee that's reasonable to you, or you can go somewhere else and get that same reasonable fee. And if what you do is valuable, then it shouldn't matter that you have been volunteering with them. So The first thing to do is let go of the emotion of the I need money thing because that will come through in your dealings and you need to be confident. Your personal budget does not matter one bit in this conversation. And you didn't tell me what kind of work you do, but just figure out what your market rate is. Find out what other people charge for the same kind of work and be really matter of fact about it. You may feel emotional inside, but that doesn't really help you when you're setting a fee. And Usually when people are asking you to 
set up a contract, they're expecting a reasonable fee. And if they aren't, you don't want to work with those people, even if they're friends. Also, I would ask for more than you are comfortable with. So you may think, let's say 20 bucks an hour. Again, I don't know what your service is. So I'm just using 20 because it's a nice round number. 20 bucks an hour is reasonable. You've run the math, but life always costs more than we expect. And so maybe you should be asking for 35. The cool thing about that is it's a lot easier to negotiate down if it's not a good fit for them and find something you're both happy with versus negotiating up, right? An increase is much harder to to set into place than negotiating down. And then be really ready to highlight the pain they will feel if they don't choose you for this position. And by that, I mean, without you, why does their world suck? And with you, why is it better? Dwell on why it, why it sucks. If there seems to be some complication in why they may start looking for somebody else, highlight your institutional knowledge. You They don't have to, to ramp you up if you've been helping already. Highlight your efficiency. Be prepared to explain the value you bring to them, right? So if you're increasing their bottom line by the work you do and you can explain that, that's a very powerful tool. And then your own expertise. I assume if they want to work for you, I want you to work for them. And if you've been helping them out for a while, they already know your value, but they need to know the pain of not choosing you. In fact, I've been in a Mexican standoff for like a year with one of my clients who really wants me to negotiate down my fee. And I keep hearing a lot of explanation about why they aren't making enough money. And what I've had to do is say no when they're not willing to pay my fee. And then they go and they they do projects and I'm not there. And they find out that because I wasn't there, it was a lot harder. And they usually find out because I wasn't there, they don't get additional business. Because one of the things I do with people is help them farm their, their existing contacts. And so when I work on projects, I'm looking for additional projects that perhaps we could help out with, right? I've had to let this particular client feel that pain four or five times. And of course, it's painful to me to not make a reasonable fee that may have been negotiated down, but I could still get by on. On the other hand, I'm still commanding the same fee that I have started with. So you see what that is? It's I had to say no, and I had to let the client feel the pain of not bringing me in on a project, right? And sometimes that pain means I also skipped income. So just a little example of how how it might go. You may have to say no and you may have to work for somebody else. And then time pressure is always a great closing tool if you're selling yourself. And that means seeking additional contracts with other folks. If this one looks like it's languishing, just go find other work. If, if what you need is income and you've got a skill that's marketable, go market it to somebody else if it's not a good fit for your friend's company. And perhaps at some point they'll ask you to help and you'll have to say, I'm busy this week, but in three weeks I can do it. That's a much, that's also a much stronger position to be in than, well, you know, um, I kind of need the money for the household income and it would be like the second income and my husband's working full time, but Hey, yeah. So this is the fee I want, right? 
Kelly, thanks for the question. It was kind of fun to answer something that was a little bit different, but still an area where I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because I have to set my own fees with clients, right? Guys, if you want to know more about me, you can check out my podcast at livingfreeintennessee.com. We're highlighting our adventures here in Tennessee as we build a homestead and a business. And if you really want some awesome coffee, you can get that at hollerroast.com. Jack, thanks so much, and keep the questions coming. Damn solid advice, but what else would we expect from Nicole? Um, I want to reiterate uh, just one thing there that I think applies to most entrepreneurs, specifically new entrepreneurs with a product and or a service. Um That has not, it doesn't even matter if you've ever charged a person before or the first time you've ever talked to them. It could be setting the price on a product in a shopping cart that you're going to put on your website. Now, you have to temper this with some reality. If you go into the resale business and you're selling the exact same product that can be bought on Walmart and Amazon, first of all, you're probably going to get beaten up and, and lose. But if you are or if this is a product that's available from a 100 different resellers and you're 25% higher on that product, Unless you're adding some kind of service contract or something with it, you, you, you have a market price that you have to deal with. However, when it's anything unique and your individual service is always, always, 100% infinity, always unique. A custom-made product is always unique. It is often the case that people price their product too low. A, a product that's priced too high won't sell, and then you can lower the price until it sells, okay? You can find the mark and the pricing curve where you don't sell as much as you possibly can. You sell a little bit less to a little bit better customer. That's that's the pricing curve you're always looking for. That's major corporations work really hard on price point setting where they can do that. So if you think about a curve, if I charge you $1 for something, then your head's worth $100, you might think everybody will buy it. Unless it's already a known product, actually people won't. They'll think it's so cheap and chintzy that it can't be that good. You know, when you see those infomercials, like, it's slices and dices, and it's $1.99, and you get two for the price of one. You're like, that's junk. I know it's junk. As you raise the price, funny thing happens, more and more people buy it. When it's priced to the point where it seems a good deal, cheaper than it should be, but it's close to what you would expect to pay for it, you hit the top of that curve where you get the most amount of people. That curve kind of turns into a bell curve, and it levels out a little bit. And you kind of get into a plateau. And as you increase your price, you don't really get any more business. And as that bell comes over the back side, it begins to decline, and it declines slowly, and then eventually it cascades off the end. You know, if I'm selling a, 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 a widget that you think is worth about $200, people will still buy it at $220, but when my price point hits, let's say, $300, you're just going to just wipe out and bottom out to the end, and nobody's going to buy it. They'll go buy somebody else's for less. Where you really want to be, if you, if you nail it ideally, is right where that curve begins to decline. The people that make a decision over $5 or $10, you don't want. They're going to be the customers that require the most amount of maintenance, for the least amount of profit, and they're going to take away from your other customers. So with that in mind, what I always tell people is when you're setting a price, if you don't feel a little bit uncomfortable, that it's a little bit too high, raise your price until you at least feel that way. And then you always have the ability to go down in price. But when you build a customer base, 
at a price and you want to raise it, this creates problems. No one ever complains that you cut their cost. People always complain when they increase it. It takes me all the way back to when I was a teenage boy working in a grocery store. And they would have me go out and price the milk. And because things would change in the pricing structure, milk would go up a penny a gallon. And I'm sitting there, a 16-year-old kid with a pricing gun, pricing milk, and I have an old lady yelling at me over a penny. They never yelled at me when it went down a penny. I'm just saying. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. This, let's talk about cooking. Cooking is a life skill. Cooking is something that I'm passionate about. Anybody that's listened to the show for a while knows I love to cook. I see it as a survival topic because one of the biggest things for survival of the family in the world today is not going into debt and blowing all your money on stuff you don't need. The people that cook really great food spend a lot more time eating at home and a lot less time eating out. You eat better quality. You eat better nutrition. It's better for your health. All of that's a survival topic, but you put money right back in your pocket. A fantastic technique for steak is known as the reverse sear. First time I ever saw this, my good friend Brian Black at ITS Tactical actually did it. He set the smoke alarms off in his house. I actually posted a little viral video on Facebook a few years ago with his, his kind of sophisticated thing. The, the, the alarm may trigger. It was pretty funny. I'll see if I can dig it up and find it for you today. It was just in one of my memories, but I didn't repost it. Um, but I, I saw it. I was like, that is fantastic. It's basically sous vide without sous vide, sort of, kind of. And Chef Keith approached me recently and said, hey, do you think your audience would be interested? And I said, I bet they would, Keith. So here's Chef Keith on the reverse here. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to weigh in on a question that I get pretty often about reverse searing. Now, it's interesting how the Internet circles and um, all the people that are talking about food and foodies and magazines, they go from topic to topic and things get really popular and it's all the buzz and all the rage and then it falls out of favor. Um, the reverse sear is something that people are talking about quite a bit now and uh, it seems to me that um, sous vide is sort of really gained in popularity and might start to be kind of falling out of popularity. Um, I was reverse searing, I mean, excuse me, I was sous veding back in the um, mid-80s before anybody had talked about it, and we had giant sous vide circulators in the restaurant industry that looked like, you know, futuristic machines. And, of course, now um, they have many different home models, and the prices have come way down and all that. And there's definitely a place for sous vide. Um, it offers some great benefits, and uh, I'm not going to knock it. I've used it many times. I think it produces great meats. Um, to me, the best play for sous vide is using it as a um, a tool to have food prepared for, you know, a large party and uh, to have it done at a set time and you know what the temperature is, you can sear off steaks or finish chicken, whatever it might be, I think it has great value for that. But as far as just um, the everyday person, this reverse sear thing that you may have heard about, and for those of you that have asked me, um, this is a great way to cook um, meats. And we're going to talk today, of course, about steaks. And the thing about steaks these days is they're very costly. And uh, the worst thing you can do is overcook a steak, and even undercooking a steak isn't great because what I see people do is they will cook their steak, and, uh, you know, number one, it comes out of the refrigerator at 37 degrees, and then they, 
you know, grill it for a while on too high of a flame or they'll sear it too high of a flame. And then, you know, it looks cooked. They'll take it out and they'll cut it open and uh, all the juices are running out. It's bloody. And some people get freaked out about that and they're, oh, crap. And they put it back on the grill after it's been cut or uh, sometimes they'll throw it in the microwave. I mean, it just gets worse and worse. So that is not what you want to do with expensive meat. And the other thing is if you're cooking with expensive meat, you really need to own a good thermometer, something like a thermo pen. And, you know, they're a little costly to buy. Uh, Thermoworks is a good brand. You can find them um, on the Internet or maybe Jack can put a link to one on Amazon um, and you can get one of those. Now, once you have it, you know, the thing is usually going to last a lifetime. And if you're cooking expensive meat, this is something you really need. So don't uh, don't hesitate to get yourself the proper tools. So what is the reverse sear? Well, with most um, steaks, people are and what we used to do in the restaurant all the time, just because of time itself, is we would take a steak out, fire it in a very hot skillet, and then finish it in the oven because it can't take the uh, so much heat underneath for too long of a time. So we would sear it on both sides, throw it in a 400-degree oven, and then it comes out. A lot of times people are broiling steaks at super high temperatures in the steakhouses, uh, up to 800 degrees. And these are all uh, very fast cooking methods. Now, there's a place for those, but I think at home, for those of you that want really great meat that kind of mimics sous vide but without all the hassle, and I do find it to be a bit of a hassle sous vide um, This is a great method. So what you would do, first of all, is have the right meat. You can't have thin steaks here. You have to have steaks that are at least an inch and a half, I would say. Um, the better choice is going to be something closer to two inches. So good, thick cut, you know, New York's. It could be a filet. It could be a prime rib or a ribeye. Those are going to be your your best uh, thick cuts here. And what you're going to do is start out in a 250-degree oven. Now, um, you need to season this meat first, and I'm going to plug my Steakhouse Blend. That is an excellent meat seasoning. So just take your steaks, shake on some Steakhouse Blend from Harvest Eating or your favorite spice blend or just salt and pepper. Um, put some of that on there, kind of press it in, and then put these steaks um on a rack, and this is the best way to do it, on a little raised rack, something that you would uh, put cookies on. Put it in a uh, on top of a sheet pan and put it into a preheated 250-degree oven. That's a very slow oven. That's basically barbecue temperatures, slow-cooking barbecue temperatures. And you're going to cook that meat. Um, I would say shoot for a temperature, at least for me, of 120 and this is where, you know, it's going to take about 25 minutes to get there. And this is where that thermo pen is super important. You just take that and, you know, poke that uh, steak and you'll see, you know, you get up to 120, you're good to go. Take it out and then you're going to sear it. Now, what do you sear it with? Be careful with just plain butter, you know, because you're going to need a very, very hot skillet and you don't want to burn the butter a great thing to use is ghee now a lot of people are on the keto diet these days and uh, ghee is very popular so it's basically clarified butter um, and that's a great thing to use and then you just put a very hard sear on your steaks and you have basically achieved a reverse sear 
and you're going to find that the meat is great. And, and what's nice about this is you'll get a better sear than sous vide because when you're sous videing meat, it's cooking inside of a bag and all the juices of the meat tend to really, we'll say waterlog it. It's very moist and you can pat it dry as much as you want. But as soon as it uh, hits the hot pan, a lot of juice releases and you don't get um, that great of a sear. Or you can if you do it right, but you're going to get a better sear this way because the outside of the meat is going to be very dry. So when you put in that fat and the meat um, touches it on the hot skillet, you're going to have some great stuff. So that is basically a primer on the reverse sear. Um, just remember you're going to want to take it out at least 15 degrees um, before your final temperature. So look at a chart on the internet. You know, if you want it to be rare, if you want it to be well done, which is a crime, medium well, these are the things that you need to take into account. Um, so for rare, you're going to be looking at about 105 degrees when you're taking it out of the oven. Medium rare, 115. Medium, about 125. And medium well, we're not even going to talk about that. You don't want to do that. So for me, I want to take it out about, um, you know, 120 degrees. And then uh, I'm I'm shooting for a final temperature about 135ish, something like that. And that's uh, that's a good medium. There'll be plenty of pink in there, and you're gonna love a reverse seared steak. Those of you that want to check out some of my spices, visit HarvestEating.com in the store. I do have very little left. I'm not gonna be buying any more inventory for a few months. Uh, I do have some steakhouse blend, some Montana steak, and some grilled chicken. With that, everyone, have a great weekend. Thanks, Jack. Take care. I think if you give that technique a try, it will kind of blow you away. It really will. And don't forget the salted steak technique. The salted steak technique is where we take a piece of steak and we cover it in salt like it looks like it's ruined. I mean like it's completely coated. And I suggest using uh, kosher salt or another very coarse salt for this, both sides of the steak. We let it sit for 15 minutes per quarter inch. So one-inch steak uh, would sit for one hour that way. We then wash it off and we cook it. Why do I bring this up with a reverse sear? Well, Chef was talking about doing this with very expensive cuts of meat. But something like a lower quality piece of sirloin or even uh, like a front shoulder, um, a London broil, etc., all of these things can be done with a reverse sear. And if you combine it with the salted steak technique, uh, and it, don't add any additional salt to flavor, but it will not taste like a salt brick if you do it right. Uh, I promise you, you can take that low-end piece of meat, use this high-end technique, and end up with a high-end dinner for less money. If I don't have a video on salted steaks, I should probably do one soon. Uh, but if you just go to YouTube and search for salted steaks, you'll see exactly how to do it. And it really does work, as does the reverse sear. Next up, question for uh, financial advisor, investment advisor, John Pugliano on Roth versus conventional 401ks. John, take it away. Well, Happy New Year to all the TSP listeners. Today we're going to start off the new year with a question about Roth 401ks. This question came from Chris in North Georgia. And he's the first person to get his question in for the year, so that's why I wanted to take it. And it's also a good idea to start the new year by talking about IRAs and Roths because there have been a couple changes to the program. So let's take a look at Chris's question. He says, what are the differences and pros and cons of a traditional 401k and a Roth 401k? He goes on with some backup information to say that his employer recently just started offering Roth 401k options. 
His employer matches 50% up to 8%. And so to take advantage of that, Chris is putting in a full 10%. He wants to know if he should start redirecting some of his contributions that have been going to the traditional 401k over to the new Roth 401k option that's available to him. Well, Chris, before I answer your specific question about the 401k version, let me address just traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs because there have been a couple slight changes this year. And what they've done is they've raised both the contribution limits as well as the income limits to being able to contribute to Roth IRAs. So going forward for 2019 contributions, the individual contribution limits have been raised by $500. So if you're under 50 years old, you can contribute up to $6,000 to either the traditional IRA or the Roth. And if you're over 50 years old, you can contribute $7,000. The other thing to keep in mind is that the income limit for contributing to a Roth IRA has also gone up in 2019. So if you're single, your adjusted gross income can be $122,000 before your contribution amount started getting phased out. And if you're married, that adjusted gross income goes up to $193,000. And so that's good news for people that are in higher income levels and that have you know, previously had to use the backdoor Roth IRA to make that contribution. And then, of course, as far as traditional IRAs, there continues to be no income limits to being eligible to contribute to the IRA but of course, the deductibility does phase out as your income increases. So for those kind of specifics, you should be talking to your CPA or your financial planner. But I did want to make you aware of those changes that those limits have been raised. Now, specifically back to Chris's question, as far as 401k programs in general, the only negative thing I would say about them would pertain to the programs that, number one, either limit the choices that you have for investments, and some of them are extremely restrictive, where the other qualm I have with 401k plans is that even if they give you a lot of investment choices, many times what they'll do is force you into purchasing mutual funds that have very high fees associated with them. So those are my only qualms about 401ks. If you're in a program that offers you a lot of choices and if the fees are reasonable, then that's a good 401k program and you should contribute to it as, as much as you possibly can. But one reason that I do generally recommend to people that they only contribute up to the amount that their employer matches is because what that allows you to do is, is take that excess money that you would be saving and instead of putting it into a restrictive 401k plan that your employer controls, you can just open up an IRA or a Roth IRA at any discount broker, and that puts you in a position where you can not only have a wide range of investment opportunities, but also because you're going through a discount broker, you can generally do it at a very low cost. Now, Chris, as far as your specific 401k program and your question about should you be diverting some of your contribution from going into the traditional 401k and moving it over into the Roth 401k. Well, I don't know your tax situations and things, but let me tell you what I would do. What I do in my own personal life is max out my Roth IRA, and I do that because a Roth, although it's funded with after-tax dollars, all the consequential capital gains accumulate and they become tax-free. Where if I go with a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k program, those capital gains are only tax-deferred, but in retirement, when you withdraw the money, your tax is ordinary income. I also like Roth IRAs because they don't force you to take required minimum distributions at age 70 and a half. 
So for me, I would personally be maxing out my Roth contribution, whether it was in an IRA form or whether it was with an employer 401k plan. I would always opt for the Roth. I think the Roth is a better long-term deal. Something else to keep in mind is that as an employee, your individual elected contribution can be designated to go either into the Roth 401k portion or into the traditional 401k portion. But the amount that your employer is matching on your contribution, that only goes into the traditional 401k and won't go into your Roth IRA. Something else that I really like about Roth 401k plans, and this is where the employer plan is superior to having your own individual Roth IRA. And that's when it comes to the limitations. You see, because in a Roth 401k, there are no income limitations to you being able to participate. You heard me mention earlier, if you're married and your adjusted gross income is over $193,000, then your eligibility starts to phase out as to how much you can contribute to your Roth IRA. Well, in an employer program, there are no income limitations. So that's really good news. The other great aspect about the employer 401k plan is that you don't have the $6,000 contribution limit. In fact, it's significantly higher. It's $19,000. And if you're over 50 years old, you can take that amount up to $25,000. And that allows you to squirrel away a lot of money in a retirement plan that's going to be tax-free for the rest of your life. I think that's a huge advantage, and personally, that's what I would be doing with my income. Now, as far as other people out there, whether you choose between contributing to a Roth or an IRA, I would just say this when you think about your personal situation. It really comes down to what you think your long-term tax situation is going to be. If you're doing a really good job with your saving and investing, then you may find yourself in retirement making as much or more than you did when you were working. Or on the other hand, if your only income in retirement is going to be Social Security, then perhaps contributing to the traditional IRA is more appropriate for you. Well, hey, Chris, thanks for your question. Happy New Year to everyone. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Uh, I completely agree. Have very little to to add to that other than just reiterating. I will always, 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 always go with the Roth. Every time I say that, I'll have at least one person that will try to explain to me when I'm wrong. And then when we do the math, we'll find out, no, I'm not. Uh, My other thing is I'm big on options. And this is another reason I'm always big on Roth. And I don't care if it's IRA, conventional versus Roth, 401K, conventional versus Roth. In a Roth IRA, your contributions can be taken out at any time, tax and penalty free. The interest and earnings that you've gained on them will be subject to the same types of taxes and penalties as early withdrawal from a typical conventional IRA or 401k. You never know when you're going to need that money, and the fact that you can get your money back because you've already paid tax on it anytime you want and free it up for things in your future is something I never want to give up. Okay, with that, let's go ahead. we got one more segment today before we have my anchor segment. This is Stephen Harris on generators and propane pigs. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel to answer your questions. I have had a whole series of questions on propane generators from various people. In fact, I have spent like a half hour writing an email on the subject, and I took that email and I posted on the Survival Podcast Facebook forum. 
when I spend time now writing long emails for friends and people who ask me questions, I sanitize them, take their name and email off, and I post it on the TSP forum so all of you guys can read and get the benefit of what I was saying to one person, because I got links and descriptions and everything else in there. Now, let's talk about propane generators. Propane is an incredible fuel. If you're living out in the country, you might have like a 250 or a 500 um, gallon tank outside, which is also called a pig. So we're just going to refer to it as a propane pig. And uh, this is an incredible amount of fuel. Now, propane, which is C3H8, is going to stay propane forever. It's not like gasoline. It does not deteriorate. It will stay in that tank as long as that tank doesn't rust. You got propane you can use for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and it's available when you want it. So not only is it going to be powering your furnace, it's going to be powering your stove, your cooking, your oven. You can have uh, non-electric based heat inside the house with ventless uh, propane uh, heaters. That's a whole nother story in itself. So if you want a propane-based generator, I'm going to recommend a dual-fuel propane generator, one that runs on gas and one that runs on propane, because two is one, one is none. Let's say you want to use the generator someplace else, loan it to a neighbor, well, that's going to be gasoline-based. If it's at your house, it's going to be propane-based. So I got a small generator, a medium generator, and a large generator for you. And you're either going to use the small generator and the medium generator for two is one, one is none, for a run silent, run deep, and when you need more power for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and before nighttime, and uh, for recharging your batteries, or you're going to be using the medium and the big one because you're gone and the power's out and you just want your wife to start one thing and power up the entire house, including the AC, until you get back. No must, no fuss. So let's talk about it. Your low-end generator, your small one, is propane only. It's not multi-fuel. It is the Ryobi from Home Depot. In fact, all my gens I'm recommending from this are from Home Depot. There is a 900-watt, which is really a 700-watt propane-powered inverter generator for $309 from Home Depot. It's the one that takes the one-pound propane bottles, which is, like, really stupid because it will only run for, like, an hour or two off a bottle. But you can get an adapter, and you can plug it into a larger tank, or you can plumb it directly into your 500-gallon pig, which is what I recommend. 700 watts is for your run silent, run deep, where you're being nice and quiet. And you are going to use this generator, and you are going to run your TV, maybe a refrigerator or a freezer, and you're going to recharge your Harris battery bank. How to make a battery bank? Energy1234.com. It's your number one thing. So you don't need to run the generator all the time. you got a Harris battery bank. So that's your small one. Your bigger generator to run both your freezers, your refrigerator, the microwave, and everything else in your house, all for breakfast, lunch, dinner, when you want to power everything up off of propane or gasoline, is going to be the champion. Champion is Honda's number one. Champion is basically number two. 
And RVers love the Champion. And at Home Depot, oh, did I say the Ryobi generator is only 309 bucks. Okay. Now the Champion generator is a 3,500 watt dual fuel powered RV ready portable generator. It's only $338 and it runs continuously at 3150 watts. On propane, 3,500 continuous watts on gasoline. So this is when you want to run everything in the house all at once, except for your uh, AC. It won't do that. It won't. There is a way to run your well off of this, even though your well is 240, but that will be another expert panel answer from me. So this will basically run the majority of the stuff in your house. Plus, with this and the Ryobi, you get two is one, one is none. Now, if you got a bigger house and you want to have two generators for your house, one to run all of, you know, more, not quite run silent, run deep, but kind of like run snorkeling close to the surface, if you know what that is when it comes to a submarine, what you're going to do is you are going to get the Champion 3500-watt dual-fuel RV generator. Use that to charge your battery bank and run everything in the house, except for, like, your AC and everything else. And when you want to run your AC and run everything in the house, you got a bigger house, you are going to buy the Champion 8000-watt, again, at Home Depot, dual-fuel push-button electric start-powered portable generator. It is only $938. So I'm talking about sub $1,000 solutions here for you and sub $1,500 solutions for two generators, for two is one, one is none. Now, the dual-fuel 8,000-watt generator is also a 240-volt generator, which is what you will need to power your well motor. Now, I can power a well motor uh off of a smaller generator, but only up to two and a half horsepower or about, uh, 2500 watts is it. So if you got a deeper one, three, four, five, six horsepower, you gotta have this 8000 watt generator. It will run your entire house. You have an electrician, hook it up to a transfer switch. You power the entire house, the AC, everything runs. You got a 500 or 1,000-gallon pig outside. It is going to run forever, and you're going to be comfortable. Now, if you want an easy way to hook up this generator, the big one, to the house without an electrician, without fancy hookup, you go to Home Depot and you get or you order what's called a Jenner Link, G-E-N-E-R-L-I-N-K. It's a 40-amp meter-mounted transfer switch. And what this does is you have the power company come out, which they're happy to do. They'll pull the meter off of your uh, box outside. They will plug in the Jenner Link, and then they will plug their meter into the Jenner Link, which is plugged into your house. And you've got a big cable that just screws on very nicely to the Jenner link. You start the generator. It automatically disconnects from the grid so there's no danger to electrocuting workers. And it powers your entire house right through your meter box, right through your, your circuit breaker box, and away you go. If, I mean, it is really no big deal. You can make a doghouse for the generator, put the thing outside so it's out of the rain, have the plumber hook it up to your 1,000-gallon propane tank. It's electric start. You can have it plugged into the Jenner link. 
you're someplace a thousand miles away. Your wife calls up, says, honey, the power's out. She's like, go outside and push the button on the generator. She pushes the start button, and everything else is taken care of. You don't need to worry about a thing until you get home. You don't need to worry about run silent, run deep. All you know is that your wife, your kids, your refrigerators, your freezers, your air conditioning, and everything is running just absolutely perfect. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Keep an eye out. I am going to have my own membership website releasing soon, and it's going to have awesome, awesome Harris content on it that you've never seen, and it's going to have all the Harris content you have and haven't seen in one location, plus some other really special stuff I have done. Keep an eye out for an announcement for that on the TSP Facebook forum. Please join your local TSP state group. They're a blast and they're a bunch of fun. This is Steve Harris. Keep on sending in those questions. I love answering them, and I will talk to you guys shortly. Thank you. All right, good stuff from Steve. want to let you guys know real quick here that uh, the Bug Out trailer series we started last year that we had some things cause hiccups in uh, and got kind of shut down about midway, a little past midway through the year, will be coming back. We have a lot of content left to cover on the Bug Out trailer series with Steve, and we'll probably be doing uh, the first one this year, Tuesday, next week. So if you've been missing the bot shows, as we call them, or Bug Out trailer shows, uh, they will be back soon. Uh, next, I have a question here on brewing, and I was going to say it's on brewing, which is making beer. It's on venting, uh, which is making wine. It's on mead making, which is making mead. It's on cider making, which is making cider. It doesn't matter. This is uh, if you are making fermented beverages, uh, anything short of distillation, because that changes some things to a large degree. Um, this applies to everything that I'm about to say. This comes from Daniel. Daniel said, you mentioned on the meat and sausage making episode recently that you don't get crazy with sanitizing when brewing, i.e. your method is keeping things clean as a practice and then a good rinse with clean hot water before use. Do you apply that method for prepping your containers for secondary fermentation or bottling? Or is that just for the receptacle used in the primary fermentation? Okay, Daniel, this is a great question. I thought I'd been clear on it, but clearly I haven't. And when I haven't, I want to know so I can make the murky into the clear. Um, the, the answer is I do this for everything. It has changed my life. It has made me fall back in love with making my own adult beverages. And I will never, ever, ever, ever Ever infinity go back to chemical sanitizers and, and scalding and uh, worrying and star sand and uh, the old days it was bleach. I just won't because I tried it and nothing bad happened. And I, in the world of permaculture and agriculture, I am a big student of the philosophy of Masanobu Fukuoka. And in, in natural farming, what he says is, The, the problem with modern agriculture is they keep looking for things to do, and my approach, just paraphrasing him, not myself, is you should be looking for things you can eliminate. What can you not do? How many things can you eliminate from a process and still have the process work as good or better? And if elimination results in doing it more frequently, you get greater output. Nothing could be more true 
Uh, no place could that be more true than the, the act of brewing. So I grew up in the school of Papazian, Charlie Papazian, uh, the original uh, the guy that really brought home brewing to America. Uh, right about the time that it became legal in most states to do it, it had been tons of people doing it, but it had been technically illegal. Uh, it was like in the early 70s when they kind of pulled the lid off that and said, hey, we're just not going to mess with this. And, uh, you know, that, that brought books like his to the surface. And, you know, everything had to be boiled or chemically sanitized and blah, 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 blah. And when you did your transfer hose, you rubbed it down with rubbing out the grain alcohol. And everything was a catastrophe. If any little segment of anything ever got in there, it would, it would turn it into a Band-Aid brew and it would ruin it. And I, I came up with that belief, and I think most people in brewing, inventing, etc., have that same belief. Something always bothered me. Something always bothered me. I would read these old recipes. I'm talking from the 1600s, 1700s, and things like that, making ginger beer and stuff. And, and, and none of them said a word about this. And I was thinking, these people couldn't have all been drinking horrid, wretched, nasty-tasting beverages. But I stuck to the, this is what you got to do. I came across Jeremy Zimmerman with Make Mead Like a Viking, and he basically talked about not doing it. And I said, well, I'm going to not do it and see what happens. So I started doing my small batch mead and cider making, uh, using an electric kettle to heat the water, melt the honey, and you know, and I do pasteurize fruits, herbs, etc. with water that's you know well past 160 degrees, and then we bring in the cold water. But the container itself is just rinsed out. Uh, a lot of times the containers, I will rinse containers out with some scalding hot water uh, right when I empty them, not so much when I'm using them, to get any kind of sticky residue out of there. Uh, so it's a cleaning thing, not a sanitizing thing. When it comes time to go into a secondary, I take my sink, I turn on to hot, which is about 130 degrees where we have our water heater set, turn the water on, I fill the, if it's a one-gallon container, I fill it up with small batch, I turn it upside down, I set it in the sink, I put my primary up on my little step stool to give it some elevation, and I transfer to my secondary, and I top it with water if I need to. That's it. When it comes to bottling, again, I will, when, I, when a bottle is used and it's empty, I will fill that thing with hot water, I'll leave about 25% airspace in it, I'll either put my thumb over it, or put the, if it's a clip-on lid, I'll put the lid on it, and I will shake the snot out of it. I'll open it up, turn it upside down, and I'll shake the water out of it. Take a look in there, and it looks clean as clean. If it's a, a flip-top bottle, I flip the top on it. If it's a screw-top wine bottle I'm using, I'll do put the bottle. You know, if there's a lid, I'll put a lid. If there's not, I don't. I'll let it dry before I close the lid, and I'll put it away. On bottling day, I'll take out as many bottles or containers of whatever I'm going to for long-term storage as I need. I'll turn my hot water on in my sink. I will rinse them out, and I will fill them up. And I'll put them away. And every experienced home brewer, home venter, etc. is horrified right now. Unless you've heard this before and tried it. That this is going to make it just disgusting and it doesn't. And the, the brewing, venting, etc. process is a very forgiving process if we practice good sanitation. Not necessarily sanitization, or sterilization, but sanitation. If we give the, the, the microorganisms that we want the head start that they need, they will do the job just fine. 
Yeah, if you have some crusty old goo from your last batch of meat inside that bottle that sat there for four or five months uh, growing different cultures of God knows what on it, and you haven't cleaned that out and you fill that bottle, that could kind of kick in some kind of secondary lacto-fermentation or whatever, and it could make a nasty taste and stuff. It's never happened to me. Uh, in fact, I've had a bad batch or two back in the old days when I started. And since I've done this, I've never had a bad batch. And I think that the bad batches I had back in the day that I blamed on insufficient sanitization were probably over-sanitization, where I actually did some damage to the, 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 the geese that I wanted to do the job. And again, and, and I, I, I wouldn't care if tomorrow one of my meads came out tasting like ass. It wouldn't change my opinion because it would be one out of hundreds of, of, of because I've gone a small batch, you know, I do a, a batch or two a week sometimes for a few months in a row. And I've not had any bad batch. So one bad batch would not even tell me that this method is not worth it. There's nothing that can change this for me ever again. Because now I love doing it. Because one of the most pain-in-the-ass things is the hassle of this has to be sanitized and these corks have to be boiled and these these lids have to be boiled and this hose, we've got to get it you know sanitized and then I set it down and, oh, now i got to sanitize. No! Rinse everything with good, hot, clean water and go on about your way and you'll enjoy brewing, venting, cider making, mead making, etc. With that, we've come to the end of another episode. I want to remind you one of the ways you can support our show is do on your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You go there, you see all the reviews that we've done. You can check out the deals of the day on Amazon. Remember, as long as you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you do help the survival podcast and the work we do no matter what you buy. Today's item of the day is a absolute preparedness item. And you know me, guys, usually when I talk about preparedness items, I'm like, you know, you really want to consider this, and or you need something for this part of your preparedness plan. I seldom say, you're wrong if you don't have this. Today's product is a $9 product that can save your ass in so many ways for $9. I will say, if you do not have one of these kits in all your vehicles, you are wrong. It is the Victor Tire Plug Repair Kit. I've talked about it before, but I'm telling you, learning to plug a tire is one of the most valuable things that you can do as a grown-ass adult in America today. And I always get people, oh, they're dangerous and all oh, this. My father ran a tire business for over 20 years. When I was nine years old, on weekends, I would go into his tire shop, and at nine years old, I was running a tire machine and busting down tires and doing repairs on tires. Uh, there are things where I, I kind of know or I observed or other experts have told me, etc. When it comes to tires, tire plugs are safe and effective and they work. They can only plug holes though. They can't plug slits and cuts in sidewalls and things like that. However, I have with my uncle one time, we were out with his Jeep, we hit something, the tire went flat. There was a funny looking thing in it. We got a pair of pliers and yanked it out. It was a number two Phillips screwdriver. It went all the way into only about a, a quarter inch of the handle was visible straight in. And so it was, you know, the diameter, the hole was the diameter of a Phillips screwdriver, a standard size number two Phillips screwdriver. We looked at it, shrugged our shoulders, plugged it, aired it up with the air compressor at the gas station, back when air was free, by the way, that's how long ago it was, and uh, put it back on the Jeep and went out four-wheeling for the day. I don't think he ever replaced that tire or worried about that plug ever again. 
Tire shops are in the business of selling you a new tire no matter what. They'll always say, we can't plug, we don't plug, that can't be patched. Bull. Learn how to do this. If nothing else, go find an old tire that holds air, uh, if, especially if you have an air compressor, and uh, you know get a cheap old rim and, and teach yourself how to do it where, where it doesn't really matter in your garage. And once you learn how to do it, you'll always have it. Pair that with a good air compressor in your vehicle, and you can save your butt in a lot of situations from being on the side of the road, changing a spare tire while cars fly past you at 85 miles an hour. I ended up in a situation like that you can read about in the review. Uh, tire plug kit wouldn't help me because I ran over a piece of angle iron, but I also decided on that day that I would never, ever, ever, infinity, be without a tire plug kit. Uh, so if I ended up in that situation, it would be a have-to-be, uh, not something that was it didn't have to be, and yet it was anyway. All right, guys, and uh, that brings us to our song of the day. Before uh, I get into that, I, I do want to remind you guys we're pretty lucky to have someone like Kim Commando working with the Survival Podcast audience now. If you have any areas of technology specifically that you would like more information about, let me know so I can get that over to her team for future segments. And do check out her podcast and her podcast network. Uh, there are links in today's show notes for all of that stuff. So song of the day today um, I got to tell you, when I got the, the song list for the next few weeks from John Adam, I wasn't real excited about uh, it when I saw it because it's from the Traveling Wilburys. I always liked them, but I didn't really care. You know, I never, this is a band that was big in the 80s. I didn't own any of their tapes. That's how long ago that was. You know, if they came on the radio, I didn't turn them off, but I wasn't a huge follower of them. Even though they're an amazing group, when you think about Uh, the people that make up the group that is the Traveling Wilburys are some of the most iconic people in music. Uh, those folks are Jeff Lynn of ELO, and if you're really young and don't know what that means, that's Electric Light Orchestra, Tom Petty, uh, George Harrison of the Beatles fame, Roy Orbison, and Bob Dylan, and if I have to tell you who Bob Dylan is, I'm not going to. Um, so anyway, um, Roy Orbison, I think, is the guy that really kind of was a linchpin that put this thing together. And by the time the video for this song had come out, Roy had passed away of a heart attack in his early 50s. And it's you know there's no way to know this for sure, but it's widely believed that Roy worked himself to death in his newfound second shot at stardom. He had been a really big-time guy and kind of had just faded away. And when they put the Traveling Wilburys together, all of a sudden he was in the limelight again, and people loved him again. And he worked really, really hard. He was working really hard, and the day he passed away, he at least had, you know, one of those final days. It's kind of a good day. He spent most of it flying model airplanes with his son. And when they put the video out, they made a change to it. And at the end of the video on the railroad car, this kind of has a railroad theme to it, the whole song does, Uh, they showed a rocking chair with his guitar in it as it reaches the end of the line. Uh, since the song came out, of course, several other members of this you know, super group um, have reached the end of the line as well. Tom Petty, um, believed to be overdoses of oxycodone and fentanyl, led to his cardiac arrest. Uh, once again, uh, prescription drugs killing more people in this country than illegal drugs. And um, George Harrison, of course, died of complications as he reached just older ages in life, as, as we all do eventually. Uh, leaving the only two surviving members now being Bob Dylan, who I think is 77, and Jeff Lynn from Electric Light Orchestra that's in his 70s too, I believe. Um, 
And, you know, some of these folks went out having done really great things and kind of lived it all the way up to the end. Uh, one young and one quite a bit older, George Harrison versus uh, Roy Orbison. And, and Tom Petty died way too young because of drugs. And there's a contrast there. And uh, it seems often that when we lose people in the world of music young, it has something to do with drugs. Even when they die of you know so-called natural causes, it's a lot of times we look at it and go, you know, 20, 30 years of drugs and alcohol will shorten your life. But they all do live pretty amazing lives, and they put a lot of who and what they are into their music because they know that sooner or later, no matter what, they will come to the end of the line. And that's a universal truth, folks. You know, we're at a Friday. We're at the end of the first week of the new year already. And uh, as we as we age, all of us, as we become more and more honest about our mortality, reach a point where we realize that, you know, I guess not everybody does this because some people die way, way too young of accident or disease. But if we do grow into older men and we reach our 40s and 50s, what we call middle-aged, we start to realize at some point we cross a, we cross a bridge. And that bridge is the bridge that there are less years ahead of us than there are behind us. And you know what that's going to bring me to? That dash and what you're doing with it. You know, I don't want anybody in this audience to work themselves to death. And I believe before I started this podcast, I was on a track to do that. You know, I, I was working 18-hour days. I was running three companies. But when I, when I just realized I needed to, to separate from that type of pushing myself to the extreme, destroying my health, destroying my relationships. I also said, well, I don't want to not contribute. I don't want to not have meaning. I want to find something purposeful so that I have an impact on the world. And finding that balance is important because, folks, I don't think we're ever going to reach the point of immortality. And I don't know that it would ever be good that we did. And even if they extend life, during our lifetimes, by 10, 20, or 30 years, when the average person lives to be 120, it would be heralded as amazing. just means the track's got a little longer, but the end of the line is still going to come. So make the most of your dash and try not to shorten the trip along the way. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Somewhere down the road
just glad to be here, happy to be alive. And it don't matter if you're by my side. 